Hello, hello. Welcome to Ami Tuckered Out. I am your host, Ami Tucker Ravel, and we are back with Nizar, our producer. After a very long time, we're back. It's been about a month, I it's think. It's been a month. Sorry, guys. We missed you. Yeah, but seriously, we had a lot of awesome stuff going on in our own lives. And uh, well, tell us a little bit about it. You. I know before we left, I was supposed to go on honeymoon. I did. Yes. You were supposed to go on a trip to Iceland with your friends. You did. Yes. So tell me about it. It was amazing. As you know, I'm a mother. Yeah. And we don't get our own vacations very often. Yeah. So this is the first trip I've taken by myself, mm-hmm. sans kids, husband, for this long. Yeah. I've taken like a day trip or two here and there and, you know, obviously freak out every time I leave. Yeah. Was this like a week? This was a week. Yeah. Six nights away, which most moms know is huge because, you know, Kyla's 15 months and she doesn't really care. But Anya (laughs) now cares. She's like, you left me for six days. If my husband leaves, no problem. See you later, daddy. If mommy leaves, it's like... Earth has shattered. You're dead to me now. Yeah, dead to me now. Exactly. Oh, you should. You should have seen her when I got back. She yeah. just rolled her eyes. Oh. I was like, "Wow, really?" Like, oh, um, you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. You? You're back. Thanks. And how dare you have fun without me? Of course. Like she just by like I got her a bunch of like chocolates. And yeah. Stuff. We were all good. About and you're like showing her on your phone pictures of snowmobiles and all this stuff. Yeah, I didn't like, do that because she, she would be less. she would be so jelly. No, she would <laughs> actually be like, "Mommy, why?" <laughs> so I went on a girls' trip. Two of my best friends were turning forty, mm-hmm. so six of us went to Iceland. We just you know we want to do something different. We've done all the big cities and the parties and this and that. We want to do something chill because now we don't see each other that ah, often, I see right? what you did there. Right. Hey, good one. <laughs> uh, something chill. It was so cold. Yeah. Obviously, it's Iceland. Amazing. I mean, it's everything you think it would be. Yeah. And we we were we were good. We did some adventurous stuff. Mm-hmm. We. I was following on Instagram. Yeah. I was seeing this stuff. It yeah. was very cool. We did this. Uh, the one thing I will say not to do, right. and I'll, I love snorkeling and all this stuff, but we decided to go snorkeling in two-degree water. And they promise you these dry suits, which, you know, you put on. Yeah. Actually, putting on the dry suits was the hardest part of it. Like, you feel like you're going to die. Yeah. And uh, you basically feel like you're going into war. Like, it's like a military wear. Yeah. And then you get in the water, which is like basically going into a bucket of ice. Yeah. Or colder, if that's possible. The thing is, your hands freeze. I didn't, I couldn't feel my hands afterwards for about four days. And yeah. there's still like a little tingle. Wow. And it's been like a month. But you got to see the tectonic plates and stuff like that. Nice. It was super cool. Yeah. So we did that. We um, went snowmobiling into mm-hmm. a glacier. It was, you know, very it, was, it was very cool. You can't do these things anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hiked up a volcano and then cool. sat in a hot tub. And you put tub. the ash on your face. Yeah, yeah. In the Blue Lagoon, we sat there for like five five hours. So I think I look younger now, you right? Do. I put all 40? This stuff. What are you talking about? 30? Wait, no. I mean, I'm not 40. Yeah. I'm still in my 30s, guys. Calm down. <laughs> And then, of course, just chilling in hot tubs and drinking wine and Very hanging nice. out. We spent like five days in the country. No, you made it look... I, I've had friends that go there um, on like every two-year trips. They've kind of made it because they went when they were younger. And they were like, this is a place that we're going to come to um, whenever we have time. And you definitely made it look awesome. So I can't wait yeah, to we did. It was awesome. Just got our own car um, and drove around. We may have destroyed the rental car oh, no. because we didn't realize it needed diesel fuel. Are you because kidding? who, I mean, what? Who, who checks that? Normal so, people should check that. No, you know what, though? We could, <laughs> we had an argument. They didn't have the, usually they have a sticker. Sure. Like a D yeah. or diesel. Yeah. They didn't have one on our car. Well, so, anyway, so, so. Any day now, there'll be a charge on your credit card. Oh, no. We, so there is three lawyers in the group. So we've been arguing, although mm. our lawyering didn't really help but we were trying to be cute 
they first were saying it was going to be like a $10,000 charge. Oh. Something Iceland's insane, by the way. Yeah. Like we, we bought, we literally ate energy bars for like breakfast and lunch because everything yeah. costs like. Oh, everything's imported yeah. unless it's, a, you know, grown fresh there. Yeah. <laughs> hey, good one. Long story short. Um, oh, yeah. The, the car thing ended up costing us like $1,000 between six of us. Yeah. You can't complain. Okay. Doable. Other than that. All smooth. Yeah. It was amazing. So cool. came back and now dealing with this move to Arkansas. Yeah, you so are. That's been the other other reason why we've been kind of MIA. Yeah. Selling a house and buying a house. Mm-hmm. So so next couple months are going to be big with shifting and all shifting, that. Shifting. Yeah. So definitely here. I'm here for the next six weeks. Yep. And then end of May will be in Bentonville, Arkansas. I don't know nice. why I have an accent for that. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then Nazar and I will be giving you updates on our continuation from there very cool yeah Yeah. so what about you how's the honeymoon honeymoon was was great so we did uh we went to sydney australia and then from there we took a cruise around new zealand a very nice trip there yeah because we had it wasn't it was nowhere near full the seat beside us was empty so we were lounging and watching movies and reading and playing games um, and then once we got there the first two because we haven't taken a trip like this ever so the first like whole day was just sleeping and then with jet lag it wasn't it wasn't an issue so my god caught up on a lot of sleep sleeping? yeah that's like a honeymoon so nice. right there for me <laughs> yeah and then uh because and we're also on the sea so there's very little to do on the ship and you're doing the things yeah. that they have planned but unless it's the casino it's it's kind of cheesy but yeah. we we it's fine we like the manipulative cheesy yeah, you know where course. it's like you're on the sea and yeah. of course we're the youngest i want to say okay uh, a lot of old people yeah. a lot of yeah a lot of old people which is fine nothing wrong with that but we had i think I, I talked about it before we left we went to hobbiton which was an outside of auckland was it everything you thought it, it would was be? everything i wanted nice. it to be yeah, big Lord of the Rings fan, so that was that was very fun. I think that was the best excursion we did. And then we went hiking up like a, a mountain for a couple miles. It was it was overall the Beautiful. trip was amazing. Yeah, yeah was, I mean, you know, it's good that you took that time out because I mean, we did the same thing as you. Our honeymoon was like two years later, but mm-hmm. whatever you do, it, it's good to because you forget because life yeah. gets in the way. Of course. And then you have kids. Of course. And then you don't talk to each other ever. <laughs> it's fine. Me and Bart just text now, so it's fine. <laughs> awesome. So, so yeah, that's where we've been. That's where we've been. It's been all good um, stuff, though. Today, though, we've got something really awesome. We have another interview to continue in our series. Who have we got today? Tara Narula Cangelo. She is actually a uh, old and dear friend of mine mm-hmm. who is happens to be a doctor. Nice. She the one had, thing we were running away I know, show, I know, but not really right. running away from. We were just, you know, highlighting all the other things South Asians do. Of but guess what? They're also doctors, and mm-hmm. doctors also do cool things mm-hmm. like saving lives. But you know, you will learn in our in our interview that she is not only a cardiologist; she's a director uh, at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. She's a professor of cardiology at Hofstra University in New York. She is a CBS News medical contributor. Mm-hmm. She writes for Oprah Magazine. Yeah. I mean, this woman has so many accolades. I can't pronounce that properly. Accolades. Accolades. It's insane. She's just um, so much more than a cardiologist. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, the way you put it, I mean, she wears many hats. Yes. She wears them well. Yes. Um, and throughout the interview today, you're definitely going to hear about all the stuff that she's been through on this journey to where she is now and and how she balances it all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, along and with she's, a, she's so. a mother of two. And she's also married to a doctor as well. Yeah. 
So um, I thought it'd be cool to get her point of view on medical journalism mm -hmm. and, you know, she's reported about things like Trump's health, yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> so we're going to get a lot of fun stories. Yeah. So stay tuned. We'll be back in just a moment with our interview with Tara. Hi, Tara. How are you? Hi, how are you? It's been a long time. So Nizar, Tara and I know each other mm -hmm. uh, through my hubby, Barth, and her brother, Carr. Nice. They are besties. Very good. Blood brothers or sisters. For a long time. <laughs> long time. I mean, they've seen rom-coms together by themselves. So me and T Tara met at her brother's wedding, Cara's wedding. Wow. And we hit it off right away. I haven't seen her in a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, and thought it'd be this would be a cool way for us to catch up. For sure. Yeah. So how you been? I've been good. I've been busy, but uh, a lot has happened since I saw you back in 2009. Yes, marriage, babies, yes, medical journalism, doctor yes. stuff. Yeah, so let's catch up. So I, I just kind of want to start off talking about um, you growing up in Miami and, and your family. And I know your father is Sikh and your mother is Italian. And I kind of just wanted to hear the story about how they met. <laughs> yes, they're a very unlikely couple exactly. if you see them together. Um, but they've been married for a long time, since 1973. And I don't think their parents probably thought they would make it that long. But yeah. they are one of those kind of true love stories. They met in the hospital in Miami Beach. My dad was um, a cardiology fellow doing his training. My mom was a nurse. Um, and there's uh, an area in the hospital we call the cath lab where we do cardiac procedures. And my dad jokes that my mom used to tickle the back of his head during procedures that he was trying to perform on patients. And um, so they started kind of as friends, and they were friends for a while uh, until they sort of developed something more than friendship. And the issue at that point was my father was supposed to have an arranged marriage. Uh -huh. His parents were still in India with all of his siblings. And so he kept telling my mom, I can't marry you because I have to have an arranged marriage. So they would break up, get back together, break up, oh, get back yeah. together. This went on for about five years. And wow. my mom sort of hung in there. And um, finally, my father flew to India and basically kind of gave his parents an ultimatum and said, you know, either you let me marry her or I'm not going to get married at all. Wow. And I think they kind of freaked out and said, yeah, okay, okay, go ahead. But it was a really big deal. I mean, my dad came to this country when he was like in his early 20s for his medical training with the intention of going back and, yeah. and just ended up staying and doing research and publishing papers and kind of getting his career established here. And so then, of course, when he met my mom, you know, it, it, I think I'm sure for his parents, it was multiple issues, but one being the fact that he'd be solidifying his future, you know, more in America and definitely not returning home. Um, but so they finally did get married, uh, albeit, you know, with kind of a blessing that was given, but maybe not the warmest of <laughs> embraces. Yeah. Um, and they've been married, as I said, for a long, long time. So what, what about her side? What about her family? You know, I think her family were, were okay with it. I mean, she was raised Catholic. Um, she was from Queens, New York. Um, and I think they just wanted her to be, I mean, she was older at that time, you know, women got married much younger. And my mom was, I think 30 when she married my dad, oh, which dear was kind Lord, of 30. I know <laughs> for their time frame, it was yeah, old. So they were, they were just excited that she met someone and that she was going to be getting married, oh. someone who was a doctor. doctor so I think in their yes. eyes, that was a good thing. 
Um, well, you know, yeah. it's a big deal that your dad did that back in the day because yeah. that's, you know, in our parents' time, that was almost unheard of. It was hard mm. to, like, go back to India and tell your parents, hey, this is what, what I'm going to do. Yeah. No, well, I yeah. got to say, when I met your dad, I instantly fell in love with him. He's a, he's a badass. <laughs> he reminds <laughs> me of my dad a little bit, and I think I hugged him, like, too many times that weekend. <laughs> I was like, who are you again? Um, so he obviously grew up mixed. You know, I grew up in South Florida, which is kind of like a melting pot to begin with. So I grew up with kids who were from all over South and Latin America. And so, you know, it wasn't like growing up maybe somewhere in this country where all you see are people who look white. I mean, people looked very different. People spoke different languages. So in that respect, I never really felt like I was kind of that different from everyone else. But at the same time, when you saw my parents, you know, my dad with his beard and turban and my yes. mom, you know, looking very white Italian American, it was, it was, it was different. Um, but I, you know, I think I related, we definitely were closer to my dad's side of the family. We just saw more of his side of the family. So I grew up feeling much more kind of attached to the Indian culture, the Indian ways. And my dad was a much more dominant kind of force in the house. So yeah. a lot of, um, a lot of the way we were raised in terms of the cultures and values that were instilled tended yes. to be more from the Indian side. Okay. Um, so it was nice. I mean, I feel like I kind of got to grow up eating Indian food and learning about the culture. And I mean, I never learned to speak Punjabi, which I'm sure my dad was not happy about, but, um, you know, and then I always definitely felt just an innate, um, attachment to Italy for, you know, not necessarily because my mom kind of gave me that attachment, but more so because I just always kind of felt deeply connected to that side. Um, yeah. I love the country and the culture. Um, so I kind of enjoyed getting the mix. And then yeah. I think relig from a religious standpoint, it was interesting too, because my dad was Sikh. And my, like I said, my mom was raised Catholic and they never really imposed anything in particular on my brother and I. They kind of said, you know, we believe in God, we're very spiritual, we pray, but it was sort of like, you can research and read about what you want and come up with what works for you, as long as you're kind of a good person and have some belief system. And I think, um, for me, that's sort of what I did. I kind of read about a lot of different religions and kind of created, I like to say, my own thing um, that worked for me. And, the, and I think because both of them were sort of moderate, my mom was raised Catholic, but she wasn't you know, super religious and, you know, she didn't go to church every Sunday and my dad was raised Sikh, but yet he had, you know, become a little bit more modernized by coming to this country. They were both a little bit more flexible and, yeah. um, it wasn't, uh, like you have to do X, Y, or Z. So, which is still pretty amazing. Cause I feel like our parents, you know, that came during that time held on to religion a lot more, or maybe were more intense about it. Um, and so, I think it's pretty amazing that both your parents were able to be like, you know what, you know, just be you, you know, yeah. this is just be a good person and spirituality and all that stuff. Whereas I feel like a lot of South Asians have gone through the, you must be this kind yeah. of thing. Right. Right. right? So yep. that's pretty amazing. And so then I got to ask, was your dad a big reason you became a doctor? Yeah. I mean, I, it wasn't, I mean, it was in the sense that I grew up sort of, I would go to the hospital with him as a kid and make rounds on the weekends when I was maybe 10 or 11. And I just sort of love, I always loved it. And yeah. I loved seeing the interaction with him and his patients. I loved hearing his stories at the end of the day. And, and yet at the same time, I kind of had innately again, had an interest in science from the time it was very little, I was like in okay. science camp. And so it was kind of both my innate interest, but also, um, seeing his world. And so, 
from a very young age, I, I really loved medicine and taking care of people. And so when I went off to college, I sort of thought I was going to be a surgeon, a cardiac surgeon. You know, I had already kind of had that inkling that I wanted to do something in healthcare, um, having seen yeah. him and his life. Would you ever work with him? I mean, if we had lived in the same place, that would have been fun. Uh, but he's in Miami and I'm in New York, so it didn't work out. Yeah. But uh, Father-daughter practice one day. Yes. When I was in my training, I, um, I would call him up many nights when I was on call by myself in the hospital and didn't know what to do. And I would say, what do you think about this, you know, EKG or this patient? Yeah. So it was great to have him kind of on call. Wow. For He's me. like on call through FaceTime with you. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. You're like, just wait a second. My dad's right yeah. here. <laughs> So you wear a lot of hats. You are a professor, a director, a medical contributor, and of course a mom. Um, and besides being a mom, what's your favorite hat to wear? Or is it all of it? <laughs> um, I love it all. And I, I, I feel very blessed to be able to do all three things. You know, some people uh, say, you know, would you ever want to stop practicing medicine because you do the media? And the answer is no. I mean, I really, truly enjoy being a doctor. I went into medicine um, because I wanted to go. You know, I didn't come straight out of college and go to medical school. I did a different career for a couple of years. So for me, when I decided to go to medical schools, because I really wanted to be a doctor and I've never given up that love of really helping people and the science and um, just wanting to improve their lives and that personal interaction that you have with somebody when they're your patient. So that is amazing um, part of my life that I love. And then the media yeah. stuff has also was also sort of a dream from a long time ago. And so to be able to do that now, I feel super lucky. And then um, I actually never really necessarily wanted kids. I wasn't like <laughs> the type of person that said I want kids. Like, um, but now yeah, we talked about this, actually. Yeah, but now I just I can't yeah. even imagine um, my life without children, you know, they, they have added such an amazing, uh, part of like this experience that we call life to, you know, this journey that I don't, I feel like it's almost like you're missing out on this amazing part of life when you don't have the experience of having children. Um, so I just feel very blessed that I've been able to have both of my kids. Um, and I love all three jobs. Yeah. 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 I, I agree with the mom thing. I think it's just, something I feel like a better person after having kids you know kind of the cheesy I feel more complete but it's true but we'll get into that later too yeah. so I have to ask in your experience what has been the most difficult the hardest thing about being a cardiologist <laughs> um I mean I I I think for me, and I see it in my kids, my husband has the same thing, you know, we're all perfectionists and we're very hard on ourselves. And so I think as a doctor, you know, you never want to feel like you missed something or you did something wrong or you didn't do enough, you know, because it's someone's life. And so for those of us who choose this path, I mean, the responsibility that weighs on your shoulders as a physician is a lot. And so I think the hardest thing, whatever whether you're a cardiologist or an internist or whatever, is just feeling like you have done enough for these people that come to you and like are asking for you to help them. So it's, to me, it's, it's that feeling at night when I'm thinking, lying in bed thinking, you know, did I order the right test or did I, you know, pursue yeah. this option or, you know, just it's, it's that part of making sure that you covered all your bases and you did everything for that person. That's the hardest so part. So how do you even like, 
stop thinking about that when you get home. That must be on your <laughs> mind at all times, right? Um, well, when I walk in the door, my kids are running to me and yelling and screaming That's for true. something. It's not, yes. but it's yes, usually yes. later in the evening when I'm like in bed and I'm thinking, you know, oh, I wonder what that scan's going to show or, you know, what should I do about this? You know, so you never really completely turn it off. Um, but that's like the beauty of it, you know, I, I think. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I definitely feel like people, if you're not totally invested in it mentally and emotionally, you really shouldn't be a physician, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem like people become a cardiologist just for the money. You have to have a passion yeah. for it. For sure. Yeah. Um, and what do you think? You know, people have these preconceived notions of how surgeons are or like, you know, the kind of attitudes they have. Or Is there anything like that with cardiologists? <laughs> I feel like I feel like there's different cliques in the in the medical world. Well, my right? husband, who's a plastic surgeon, um, you know, says that all of us doctors. Um, I won't use the term because it's explicit, but we like to met. Oh, you can. We like, it's kind. He, you he says that internists and doctors like myself like to mentally masturbate. That basically all we do is sit there and think about things and think about things, you know. And and he's a surgeon. They like to just go in, get it done, fix it. They don't need to sit there and mull over every little angle and detail. So. We have these discussions in our house a lot, but, um, (laughs) yeah, I think, you know, I like that mentally masturbate. Yeah. He's like, why do you have to think about it and talk about it a million times? Just deal with it. You know? So it is different, (laughs) definitely a different, I think, personality that goes into the different fields in medicine. Um, so for me, this was a good fit. I really like cardiology. I love the heart. It has an electrical part. It has the pump. It has the valves. Um, you can make people better. Uh, we can see all age ranges from, you know, a woman who's pregnant who has palpitations to someone who's had a heart attack or heart failure and they're at the end stage. So I really love the field of cardiology um, and the patient population and the fact that you can, like, do good. You know, you don't always feel like um, I have nothing to offer you, you know. I was going to just ask that. So you basically answered it saying your your patient demographic, you see all sorts of patients. There's no like do. kind of overwhelming age or race or any of that that you see. Yeah. It's kind of a mix. With what I do when I'm a general non-invasive cardiologist, yeah. I mean, I see people who are, you know, in their 20s and 30s who have high cholesterol or maybe their family member had an early heart attack to people who've had three heart attacks or who have an arrhythmia, you know. So it's really the full spectrum of, of problems in cardiology, uh, which, which yeah. is enjoyable for which, me. Which, trust me, I have some questions I'm going to ask you about, <laughs> uh, about some of your um, CBS episodes. So, um, And then could you name like one thing your patients do or don't do that you wish they did or didn't that just... <laughs> you see overwhelmingly all the time and you're just like, um, why are you guys doing this or not? I think, you know, for me, there's a couple things that I always like to tell people, you know, they, ha- most people don't know their medicines. They don't know the name, the dose. Uh, they just say, oh, that little yellow pill. Um, that's a problem. So I like to tell people, you know, take picture of your medicine, bring in the bottles. You should write it down. You need to know this. So knowing your medications. Yeah. Um, and then like medical records, you know, a lot of people will have tests done or they'll go into the hospital and then I'll say, can I see, you know, what the test results were, what they did in the hospital? And they'll say, I don't, 
I don't have the result, I don't know, that's also a problem because then it's hard for the person managing you to make decisions without that information. So I wish people, and I have some patients who do this and I always compliment them on it. They'll come in with, you know, a stack of their records that I can like go through. It's time consuming, but yeah. it's really valuable. Um, or they'll come in with all their bottles. So I think those are things that I wish more people did or more people knew about. So, so do do your homework is what yeah. you're telling people yes. to do. Yes, yes. You can't prepare for an emergency, but you can make it easier for the healthcare uh, professionals around you uh, to, to make sure that, okay, here's a list of his medications. Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. What has been maybe your hardest case to deal with or patient or situation where it was maybe not heartbreaking, but just the hardest case you've had to deal with in your practice? Oh, man, that's tough. I know you have a ton, yeah. though. I'm sure you have a ton. That's yeah. tough. I think, you know, I see... I see a lot of patients in the outpatient setting, you know, they come into my office, you know, we sit, we, we send them for tests, but I also, as part of my job, I work in the cardiac critical care unit and I, you know, I make oh, rounds there. Yeah. And these are like the, <laughs> the sickest of the sick. And so, you know, while you don't necessarily know those people as well, cause they just come in, um, you know, they, it's hard because many times they're young and they've had a massive heart attack and you have to make decisions like do you withdraw them from care and let them die or do you continue on and that involves a lot of family discussions and so i'd say those cases are the most challenging because you don't have yeah. the background on people to know necessarily what they would have wanted or how much to pursue or what they wanted for their quality of life and the family dynamic is difficult you know so um those cases where people are really in dire straits in the intensive care unit are probably the most difficult and where yeah. you, it's probably a challenge to, I mean, I'm sure after many years of training, you have to kind of get used to separating your emotions from it all. You do. I mean, it's hard. I don't know. Again, I think, you know, if you're a feeling human being, you never really let that go. I remember when I, on my yeah. first rotation and in, in, as an intern, my very first rotation, I was on the bone marrow stem cell transplant service. So here I was fresh out of medical school and I'm starting in the hospital as a doctor and I was taking care of, I don't think I will ever in my life take care of as sick patients as those were. I mean, these are people who basically have, you know, chemotherapy to destroy all of their immune cells. So they're like, in a room closed off from everything because they're so vulnerable to infections. And then they're given back their stem cells to try to reconstitute them. And it's tough. I mean, these are sick, sick people. And I remember sitting in the stairwell in the hospital crying on my first like, you know, few weeks because it was so difficult to see people in that state and to kind of go through it. And I remember feeling like, oh my God, it's just this overwhelming sense of emotion. And and that never has left. I mean, there have been cases even now, like I said, in the CCU where, you just can't help but sort of feel like yeah. those emotions and, and cry or, you know, have a, I don't know, not stop thinking about it because they're yeah. very draining. Um, Which probably makes you a good doctor, though. <laughs> well, I, I think oh, yeah. never losing that sense of, like, humanity yeah. is important for all doctors, for sure. And, yeah. I mean, of course, you're a woman of science. You're a doctor. But do you believe in holistic medicine stuff like ayurvedic stuff you know the natural remedies or is that because i have a lot of doctor friends relatives who don't 
Um, and just wondering what was your point of view on all that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I tell my patients that, you know, in this country, you know, the supplement industry and a lot of people use things, it's unregulated. And so unfortunately, while there may be validity to a lot of these things, and I personally think there is, I mean, there's a whole history of Eastern medicine that I think we just don't get trained in that has value. But the problem is because we don't get trained in it, because it's not researched, because those things are not tested here, people can buy things and they can be laced with other things they don't want. They can yeah. be at doses that are toxic. You know, there's a lot of issues that come with drugs that you're taking over the counter that aren't regulated. So on, on, as a theory, philosophically, I do believe that there's value to, you know, that kind of medicine, to acupuncture, to the holistic every, you know, but I just, unfortunately in America, we don't receive that training. Um, that training yeah, yeah. And that's, that's an issue. So maybe that'll change, I think going forward, but um, in, yeah. in general, when people come and they tell me I'm taking all of these crazy things, you know, I usually say probably not the best thing to do. Um, my mom is convinced if I have turmeric every day, I'll, I'll be fine. Right. Exactly. So. There you go. <laughs> I, I have, I still have it every day for honey and turmeric. Just, it's you know, that, doesn't it hurt? I'm like, whatever. For your mother. I <laughs> my mom tells me to cut onions and put it under my daughter's crib. So oh she my God. Like, all right. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. And then my brother, my brother is a doctor who's like, seriously, yeah. guys, everyone calm down. Yeah, it's, it's also my family because my mom is all about Ayurveda and my yeah. brother is such a doctor. That's funny. <laughs> so I just go home, I listen to both of them and do everything I can. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's talk about medical journalism. How did you get into it? Like, was there a training? I know you said it was a, a dream of yours. So like, tell me about how it all started. Well, so I sort of alluded to before, you know, my dad was in medicine and a cardiologist. And, and when you start medical school, you know, there's really two paths you see. One is kind of teaching and academics where you become a professor and you do research. And that research is either uh, like trial research where you, you know, conduct big trials and publish your data or you're in a lab and you're doing kind of basic science research. The other path is kind of like, you know, private practice. You're not part of, you know, you're a doctor who practices, but you're not with an academic center. And those are really kind of what you have to decide between. And I just never felt like that was me or that was what I had to contribute. And I always love to write and communicate and I like to teach and educate. And so from the very beginning of medical school, I remember telling my friends, you know, I want to do what Sanjay Gupta does. And at the time, he was like the only person really yeah. on television who was a doctor kind of doing that sort of thing. And I remember yeah. most of my friends laughing and saying, okay, whatever, Tara. I mean, that's ridiculous. You know, how, how are you going to do what Sanjay Gupta does? So there was no road to doing that. And, um, but it was a dream and I kind of kept it always in the back of my mind. And, you know, of course in medical school, when you're learning medicine, it wasn't the right time to pursue it. When I went to Boston to do my residency, I spoke to my training director at the time and said, look, I have an interest in this. Is there anybody I can speak to? And he said, well, we have one graduate who's doing like local television here in Boston and maybe she can speak to you, but I don't really know how to help you. Like, I believe in what you want to do, but I don't really know how to help you. So I kind of put it off. And then when it came time to figure out where I was going to do my cardiology training, I had to, I had the option of going anywhere, you know, in the country, you have to apply where you want to go. And I chose to come to New York because I knew if this is something I want to pursue, New York is a good place to be. And I, and I chose 
general cardiology and not interventional cardiology, which was one of the things I was interested in for the same reason. I knew I needed time outside of the cath lab where you're doing procedures to be able to do media. So a lot of my choices were conscious, like about wanting to pursue this goal. Um, so I came to New York, I started my cardiology training. And then in my last year of training, I thought, well, this is probably the right time now to think about doing this. So I, but again, I had no idea how to do it. So I sent letters and emails to every single network in the city, to every cable network, every show, every magazine, every, anybody I could like say, I want, I want to learn how to do what you do. And basically everybody said, we have nothing to offer you except for um, NBC, who at the time there was a, um, a PhD named Robert Bazell who ran their medical news unit on the nightly news. And they said, well, we've never had a doctor as an intern before. We always take college students, but um, sure, if you want to come spend a day with us a week at Rockefeller Center and learn what we do and help us out, that's great for free, you know? So, so I was like, fantastic. So, um, I, then I had to go to my own hospital and say, guess what? I'd actually like to leave my cardiology <laughs> training one day a week and go to Rockefeller Center, well, which should not go over too well. But, um, ultimately they, they accepted. And so I spent a one year sort of learning the business um, as an intern. And when I finished my cardiology fellowship, I could no longer be an intern because now I wasn't part of a training program. Mm -hmm. So I started my job as a practicing cardiologist and I went to the PR department at my hospital and basically said, look, if there's anybody who needs anyone to comment on anything, you know, send them my way. And from that, it was really just one thing led to another and I would do more and more and more. And, um, you know, ultimately I did something for CNN and something for the Today Show and something for CBS. And then, you know, CBS basically offered me uh, an ex kind of a contract with them. And so I've been with them exclusively since 2014. So for about, that's Very awesome. Cool. Yeah. So that, so you went for it. I did. And that's why I say it was kind of a dream from, you know, the early 2000s. So to be here now, 18 years later, you know, doing what I love to do and what I always wanted to do is really um, just a blessing, I think. Yeah. So you basically formed like your own training I <laughs> and did. just made it happen. I did. Which is what which is what me and Nizar are doing right now with the podcast. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So journalism, media, nowadays, it feels like there's like a whole new meaning when it comes to like news and what's going on and this fake news and real news. And do you feel that effect at all with medical journalism or is it completely different for you guys? You know, I think one of the great things about working with CBS, and I don't know that this is the case elsewhere, is that we try to do, you know, smart, smart news, meaning, you know, there's a lot of stuff that gets published um, or publicized in the health medical wellness arena that is very sensational you know oh this crazy story and a lot of places are tempted to cover that news because it's you know has public appeal and it's and the nice thing about CBS is that you know they will send me a story or study or something and i might say you know this isn't a value this isn't a good study this isn't something we should be reporting on and they listen yeah. and you know they so i think we really try to keep the bar high at the cbs about what we cover and how we cover it and how it's presented in a fair fashion you know that it's not just saying oh you know stop eating this food or don't do this we try to give all sides of the picture so that people can make um, good decisions. And at the end of the day, like based on their situation. Yeah. Right. I mean, for me, like I said, I'm, I'm doing this because 
I want to teach and, and educate, you know, so for me, it's just a bigger platform to do that, but it has to be done in a responsible way. So I would never, ever want to be partaking in something where I felt like I'm giving information that people are making decisions on about their health that could be wrong. So we try to really take it seriously um, about what we put out there. Definitely. Yeah, that's um, and even a lot of pieces for CBS, we, me and Nizar were just watching some of them. Mm-hmm. Which pieces, if you can remember, received the most attention or like feedback? <laughs> I mean, sure ton, all but... the vaccine ones get a lot of feedback, you know, because. Oh, oh that's my next question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, people, are, it's very, it's interesting. You know, when I started doing it's, this, I, I always. It feels like such a touchy subject nowadays, right? It is. I think of all the things oh, I ever God. did, I did something for a Sunday morning about the HPV vaccine, which is the only yeah. vaccine that's ever been shown to stop cancer because cervical cancer yeah. is caused by HPV. And all the, you know, CDC and everybody else supports the HPV vaccine. And I thought it was going to be like a no-brainer to put this out there. (laughs) And I got more negative comments about that than probably anything else from people saying, you know, how can you push a vaccine and, and that, you know, it's got dangerous side effects. And so, you know, it's just... No matter what you put out there, it, I think there's a lot of things that are polarizing. There, you know, I remember when I started, yes. my husband saying to me, look, you could say the sky is blue and somebody's going to write a comment to you saying the sky's not blue. You know, I, it's just in medicine, the way we're trained, you know, it's there's not really there's like there's guidelines and research or so something and there's not, you know. So when you're saying stuff like that, you imagine that everybody's going to feel the same way, but they don't. Um so I think, you know, those stories get a lot of feedback. Um, we just did something on cannabis, you know, like the marijuana. And, I saw that yeah, one too. <laughs> those get a lot of feedback. And then I think, you know, sort of the more heart heartwarming um, yeah. stories get, to me, those are the ones I enjoy doing the most. Um, I think those get a lot of reaction as well. The, the heartstrings being touched. Yeah. No puns intended. And then having kind of been the spotlight now and, and your role um, in the media, has that changed the way – you practice medicine at all in any way, or is it just an addition to what you do? What I do as a physician is just me. Like that's how I practice, you know? So, um, I think being a physician changes how I do the media, which is why, you know, I would never want to give that up because I think to get up and talk about medical issues, you have to kind of have your foot in the door to understand what it feels like to sit across from somebody who's telling you, as I had somebody, you know, a couple weeks ago that their son is on heroin and he's living on the streets and she's stressed out and she's having chest pain. I mean, like when you actually have those interactions or you see what people are worried about or you hear what the questions are, I think it better informs you as to how you want to be expressing stuff in the media. So I think, yeah. um, you know, having to stay on top of the literature. I mean, I read for cardiology and you know, I read those studies that are coming out in the latest news. So I think being a better, being a physician helps the, the, the media, not necessarily doesn't the other way around. Right? The other way yeah. around. Do you ever feel like you're somewhat of a therapist as well? Like, like obviously you're getting, yeah, I was going to say, it feels like you're like, you could be a therapist, like yeah. a doctor, you know, it's a, kind of all rolled in it's one. a very, very like, I, I had this conversation with my husband too recently. It's a very sacred um, zone as a physician, you know, people really open up to you about stuff that they don't tell anybody they don't tell their, their spouse, their kids, their friends, but in that room with you, they let their guard down and they talk about a lot of these things, you know, that are very, yeah. very personal and private. So it's, 
you know, I take it very um, seriously. And, and, and I, you know, it's hard to not, you know, people start crying, you know, they start there, there's a lot of emotion. And um, I don't know. And that's, I definitely, I definitely have yeah. with my gynecologist, like she's my therapist. Yeah. <laughs> just Because it's just, it's easier for whatever reason, because they just get it. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so ultimate goals. Dr. Oz show. Like, what, what do you want to do? Do you want to have the Tara, Tara Narula show? You know what? I, I ultimately, I would love to have um, my own show and that not, not a talk show, but like um, the way I envision it is kind of like a 60 minutes, but about medical and health stuff where you can really do a deeper dive into a lot of these stories. Because unfortunately, the way it's set up now, you know, on the morning show or on the evening news, we have about two or three minutes to talk about something and that's like nothing. So what I would ultimately love is to have at least 10 or 15 minutes to tell a story, to talk about something that impacts people in the medical health arena. Um, you know, so an, you know, an hour long show that really can do a deeper dive into a couple of different issues. That would be my, yeah. the dream. So I'm invited to the first show. Yes. <laughs> Just letting you know. You'll be the subject. <laughs> you will be there. Next one is mommyhood. Yeah. Mommyhood, my favorite. <laughs> Let's talk about motherhood and work life. So oh. you're a mama of two girls like me. Yes. And you are married to a, a plastic surgeon. Correct, yes. David? Yes. David. Um, how do you guys do it? Talk about work-life balance. <laughs> I'm laughing because... Besides drinking wine every night. The, yeah, I'm laughing because I don't. I feel like we don't really do it gracefully most of the time. But, I know. Um, None of us do. Yeah, I mean, we have help. We have a nanny, which is like huge because for us to be able to do our job, we need someone that we trust, you know, helping us with our kids. Um, but yep. it's exhausting. I mean, it really is because... You know, while we have a nanny, we're also the kind of parents that, you know, want to be with our children. So we don't have anybody on the weekends with us. We don't have any, when we get home, you know, we're with our kids and we love it that way, but it's also really tiring. So the weekends we say are like more tiring because from, you know, 7 a.m. till like 8 o'clock at night when they go to bed, it's nonstop. Um, I know. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Martha's like, can the nanny come on Saturday? I'm like, no. I know. She's been here Monday through Friday. Exactly. So, you know, the, you know, the, it's a trade-off. The, you, you take the exhaustion, but you get all of those little moments and treats and things that you would never want to miss out on. Um, but it's hard. It's hard balancing, you know, like my kids, you know, school has a, has a thing I have to go to, or she needs me to be there. Or, you know, especially we talk about now we have two girls, there's sibling rivalry. The older one wants attention. The little one wants attention. We have limited oh, time. God, it's already starting with me yeah, too. <laughs> so it's, it's a ton of challenges. Um, but you know, I, I was telling someone the story the other day, like, you know, we, you could have a really hard day at work or something stressful is on your mind. And then I come home and my two year old puts on her tutu and says, you know, can you put on, she can, she can talk now. She says, you know, I want to hear ballerina girl by Lionel Richie. And she starts dancing around, you know, and you're just sitting there laughing and looking at her and you're like this, <laughs> can, no matter what's like going on in your life, whatever it is that they're doing is so, I, it just, yeah, you're like, this is awesome. You know? So, um, um, we just make it work. We're, we're exhausted all the time, but we make it work somehow. Do you, are you, do you suffer from mom guilt like all of us? 
oh my God, yeah. I mean, every time I leave the house and it's mommy, don't go, or when are you coming home? Or now my older daughter knows how to use the phone. So she, you know, every day at 4.30, she's, she's FaceTiming us saying, you know, what time are you coming home? Are you going to take a taxi or the subway? What street are you on? <laughs> um, you know, it, it's she, they want us with them, which, you know, of course. So we always feel guilty when we're not there or we can't be there for them, you know. And and do they understand what you guys do? Does they understand why mommy's on TV? Yeah, well, the older one does. I mean, she's almost six. And so she's like, you know, do you have to go to CBS today? Are you not going to be there in the morning when I wake up? You know, um, or they'll see me on, you know, the TV. But now it's like old hat. They don't even care. They'd rather watch, you know, Nick Jr. and some show than, you know, yeah. than <laughs> CBS on in the house. But yeah, uh, no, they know. We're, we're, on, we're on Peppa Pig right now, so. <laughs> They know mommy and daddy are doctors, you know, they, my, the older one, especially she understands what that is. And she asks us questions about it. And, you know, we, sh my husband shows her like surgery videos of people having like a rhinoplasty <laughs> and, you know, so she's very aware of that, but she is exposed. Yes. <laughs> so I guess that's the next question. I mean, I, I feel like you're gonna, I know, I, I think I know your answer, but I, I'm sure you wouldn't want them to be doctors unless they wanted to be, but it, it could easily happen, obviously. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, I don't care what they do. Honestly, like I, I, like I said, I think, you know, to me, like, the greatest thing in life is if you can find what you love to do and do it. You know, it's sad yeah. to me when people are doing things that they don't really enjoy. So um, whatever it is that they're passionate about, I just hope that they apply themselves and they do it. But I mean, I love science and medicine and, and being a doctor, and my older one already seems to love science as well. And, and so, you know, okay. she may very well end up doing something, um, in the healthcare field and, you know, we'd be fine with it. Yeah. So. I think, I think David's videos are probably helping. With <laughs> and so to segue into the next question section about South Asians, this, this is, it's a good question to segue into because a lot of South Asians, as we know, are doctors. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have become doctors in our generation because parents have pushed them towards that or whatever it is, or, you know, their, their parents are doctors or whatever the reasons are. Why do you think a lot of South Asians are in the medical field? Are we just good at that? Is it just part of our blood? <laughs> Probably. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, I, I'd have to ask my dad, you know, because I think it was really that generation where a lot of South Asians came to this country as physicians. And whether it's yeah. because that was something that was, you know, esteemed or prided or thought of as a way to, to be able to get out of India, I, I don't know what the what the reason is why it was so. Yeah. But it definitely is something to that. Um, I think it's just a respected in that community. It's a very respected career. You know, you can make a decent living. You're helping people. Um, you're using your brain, you know, so I think there's a lot. To you can marry a, a beautiful Italian lady. <laughs> <laughs> your dad yeah. likes score. I know. I know. <laughs> so what do you think is the biggest health concern for South Asians are age heart disease. Nowadays. No, yeah. I mean, heart disease is the number one killer, uh, you know, sort of in general um, in this country. But, you know, in the South Asian population, it's known that that is a big, big problem. So, you know, we always tell people, in fact, I'm giving um, a keynote speech this Friday to a bunch of girls who are in high school um, about Go Red for Women, which is like the heart disease campaign awareness for women. And, and we're starting young. And, and I talk a lot about this with my in my volunteer work with the AHA, is that it's never too... You're never too young to start learning about risk factors and prevention, and the earlier you start, the better. And so I think specifically for the South Asian community, that's very, very important um, because people may not grow up 
with the best modeling and behaviors um, from the food that's in the house or the lack of or exercise, you know, of exercise or smoking or whatever it is. So I think teaching kids and youth um, early is really important. Um, and, and they're, they're old enough to learn it. And once you start laying down those healthy patterns at that age, it just becomes routine. But when you start to try to teach people, you know, in their forties, it's already almost too late at that point in some respects. Um, a lot of times they already have heart disease, you know, at that point. So. Yeah. Well, I'm hearing, you know, we're, I'm closing in and end of my thirties now. And I'm, I'm hearing more and more people in their thirties and forties having heart attacks and like, high cholesterol and i mean it just feels like how did this happen we're so i mean these are south asian friends you know and i know it's kind of part of our genetics as well right um but it's just it feels like everyone's all these problems are arising and people our age nowadays it's crazy it's unfortunate i mean a lot of people think that that happens to older people but you know we see people all the time who are 30 and 40 with heart attacks you know or strokes so um, it's never as, so then what, what are some kind of simple, uh, things that you can help us or help listeners even change in their kind of daily behaviors that will kind of bend those risks, uh, to, to a place that's much easier to deal with once we get into our forties and and into older life. Yeah. Well, we talk about like probably six or seven things, which is really, you know, knowing your numbers. So starting to know what your blood pressure is, you should know that and, you know, what a normal pressure is and what's not and knowing your cholesterol numbers, knowing your blood sugar. So high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, some of the biggest risk factors. So if you start in your twenties, knowing your, those numbers, you will always be part of your awareness that it's something you have to pay attention to. Um, and then lifestyle things like exercise, you know, so really making exercise in particular aerobic exercise, part of your routine every day, every week, um, you know, choosing healthy foods, you know, stopping smoking, drinking alcohol in a healthy way, which is, you know, we tell people one glass a day for women, two glasses a day for men. Um, And then other things that, you know, we start to counsel people on are like mental health issues, you know, so getting, if you have depression or anxiety or stress, you know, these things need to be kept in check because that plays into your risk for cardiovascular disease. So there are a lot of things that, um, you know, people can do, we always tell them the only thing that you really can't control is your age and your family history, but all of those other risk factors for cardiovascular disease are like modifiable and you can really go a long way in preventing um, events from happening if you just pay attention to those things. Uh, Tara, there's, I went through a bunch of your stories. I just, maybe in a few sentences, you can kind of sum up uh, to our audience um, what you spoke, what you spoke about. Um, and, and the first story, I know you did many stories on the flu and vaccines. <laughs> so can you can you just give a quick, I guess, conclusion from that story? Yeah, I mean, this year we just saw a really, really difficult flu season. And in particular, we heard a lot of stories of children, um, you know, healthy, otherwise healthy children and young people dying. And I think, you know, for the most part, a lot of people don't take the flu seriously. At least, you know, when we grew up, it was kind of like, yeah, I had the flu, but no big deal. And I think what this year really did is, is make people aware that, you know, it is a serious infection and it can progress um, very quickly within 24, 48 hours to, to death in some cases and not necessarily in people who had underlying problems. So, um, you know, getting the flu vaccine, unfortunately, you know, it's not as effective as we want it to be. You know, it's it's about, you know, 30 to 40 to 50 percent effective most years, depending on the strain. But it does offer some protection and some is better than none. Um, and 
it can decrease the severity of the illness. So, you know, I think we really tried to get the message out that it's important to get vaccinated. It's important to get your kids vaccinated for the flu um, because, you know, it, it can go south very fast. And that's that's crazy. I mean, to hear these stories, to see these pictures of kids who are, you know, one minute they're playing soccer on the next day, you know, they've died. It's horrible. Yeah. And the reason why I asked this and it's closer to my heart now, obviously, because I have kids and um, Anya got it, got the flu this year. Um, and I, I can't tell you for those 10 days, I didn't sleep at all. She got the, she got the vaccine yeah. and that's why we believe the severity was pretty, it, it was low. Yeah. You're um, talking about the shot. It's a flu shot. Yeah. It's not a vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Shot. I, I shot. Um, but it's, you know, I'm around moms all the time and it's such a hot topic because I would say more than 50% of moms that I know aren't giving the flu shot yeah. to their kids. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think a lot of moms are scared and they think, you know, why am I giving it? It may not even be that effective. Um, and it's, I've had many, many mom nights of conversations on this. It's just, I, I don't, like you said, I don't remember growing up with these conversations right. at all. No, exactly. Um, and now it seems to be a very, like, intense one among uh, parents. Yeah. You know, so. Yep. Um, no, just uh, I, I, that's that's the one, the, the few stories I talked about the flu. That's, I listened to those because obviously <laughs> I went through it. It was scary. It's scary as a parent. You had a story, uh, I think, on Oprah magazine about heart disease and women of right. color. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, so I also contribute to Oprah magazine, um, and and that's been great too because it obviously reaches a little bit of a different audience. And so they had come to me and said, um, "Can you write something for Heart Month?" but we want to do it focused on women of color. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about in cardiology is that we're not really reaching, women of color are at increased risk, um, whether, you know, any color. And unfortunately, we're not, we haven't done such a great job in the cardiology community of reaching them um, to, to make yeah. them aware of their risk and to educate them about prevention and to um, get them on appropriate, you know, kind of treatment. So, it's it was important to get the message out there that women recognize that heart disease is their biggest risk factor, that they pay attention to their risk factors, that they, you know, pay attention to symptoms, that they recognize symptoms, um, they and that they, you know, go to a doctor who really makes that a focus and, and listens to them. So, um, yeah, that was a really important story uh, to get out there. Quick question, and I'm not sure if I just heard about this morning. Apparently... There's a plastic surgery app for kids. Have you heard about oh, this? Oh, I have not. <laughs> okay, oh, so boy. I just read it. I've heard about the news this morning. I don't know, something, CNN or something was on uh, it. It's a plastic surgery app, I guess, for for kids to for them to understand what plastic surgery is, if they're interested. It's a free app. Uh-huh. And apparently it's, like, obviously very controversial. So I was wondering if you had any opinions on it or if you had oh, um, I haven't heard of it. Um, and okay. I, I have to ask my husband, the plastic surgeon. Yes, ask your um, husband. I want to see what he thinks. But, you know, we, we actually, you know, it's an important point. You know, my my daughters, you know, are growing up in a house where they're hearing things from other people. They see things on TV. And we try to really, you know, to keep the conversations not about, you know, appearances and, you know, because it has a tendency, you know, even in adult conversation, you see something, oh, look at that, you know, and we always try to make a conscious effort to not talk about that, you know, um, in front of them, because I think it really affects how they start to view themselves or what they might think about themselves. So I'm not sure, um, 
you know, how I feel about the idea of kind of pushing that at for a young age. At the same time, you know, there is value to, you know, some kids who really uh, need it or want it. And it really can go a long way in changing their self-esteem for the rest of their life to have something done early on. We see it a lot with rhinoplasty. You know, my husband has done some surgery on girls, you know, who said they didn't even want to take their prom pictures because, you know, they were so embarrassed about their nose. So, um, so I think it's, there's, there's good and there's bad and you have to kind of walk that fine line when you're talking about kids and plastic surgery for sure. I'm I'm just looking at pictures of the app when you were, you're bringing it up. So the app is called beauty clinic plastic surgery and it's it's a very like cart- it, it's it shows a patient on a table and you are basically the surgeon uh. taking syringes and <laughs> oh extracting God. fat and then uh, it, they don't actually label it but you'll be injecting it with a blue liquid later. <laughs> it's to like the old school the game skin. operation. Yeah. It's like but, operation, like but for the you know twenty first century. Oh my God! And, and and a lot of the controversy you've already commented on, but a lot of it is is this. It's it's cartoonified. So the the kids aren't really and they're using such language like um you'll be okay now perform double eyelid surgery to make uh tess's eyes eyelids more beautiful right so it's like inherently teaching giving these this vocabulary and this verbiage to kids that if it's not the case now with you or somebody you know it's not close to perfect or right it's not what it could be right and i think so that's the way they're marketing it yeah mm-hmm. and so the onus is on not so much the the app makers, but it's on the the media companies. It's on Google, Amazon, and Apple for okay. You are allowing these into the marketplace as you're you're preying on these the insecurities clean, clean. of yeah. of kids. Yeah. And um, if it's now if it takes the more educational side of it, that's very different. That that is something that we could use more of. But this is not going in that direction <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah. So I just heard about it this morning. That's yeah. interesting. That big... uh, now I want to see it. Now I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> yeah, ask ask yeah. David about it too. I want to see I what will. he thinks. I'm sure. curious, yeah. <laughs> so some fun questions. Okay. Um, what Are you working on any projects right now um, that you like to talk about? Am I working on anything? Well, I'm always trying to come up with story ideas for CBS and things that I um, want to cover. And so I definitely am kind of, there's things in the works, uh, hopefully to be put out soon. Um, and then I am planning on doing more um, speaking engagements. I just uh, gave a keynote speech about personalizing medicine and I really enjoyed it. So I'm hoping to do more of those. Um, those are really the big things. I just uh, signed another contract with CBS, so I'll be with them. Congratulations. <laughs> is there, so yeah. with CBS, whenever you renegotiate contracts, is there ever a talk about, like you talked um, when you were pitching this idea of having a 60 minutes as I did pitch it. Show, I did pitch it to a little bit. So is that nice. something where they, where they, is that something where they're eventually you would like to have something like that with CBS yes. since you have a working relationship with them? Absolutely. Are they receptive to yeah. that idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, very good. <laughs> well, good luck on yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very as cool. long as you use the words mental masturbating, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> That'll be the name of the program, Mental Masturbation with I Dr. Tom. I mean, I a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. Keep us posted Great. for sure. I will. So then uh, next question is, who would you love to sit down with an interview? Oh, boy. That's a tough one. Oprah. I, I just because I love her. I love her so yes. much. I mean, there's like not many people that I feel um, 
just in awe of and she's like one of them so I would love yeah. to meet her and talk to her and you know, she's just done so much good for so many people through her work yeah. and and her her public presence so yeah, yeah. <laughs> she'd be a great therapist she would she would <laughs> yeah. okay what are you not very good at oh art which is like, it drives art. me insane that my husband's like such a great artist, you know, and I can't draw. My daughter yes. is like better than me. I, I mean, I have no artistic <laughs> talent at all. And I'm with yeah. you. I can't. When Anya's like, draw a rainbow, I get like nervous. Yeah. Oh. I don't know how to do that. I know. And I can't cook. Those are like two things. Can't cook, can't draw. Yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. It's okay. You're saving lives. That's good. That's pretty good. What is your favorite word? Serendipity. 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 Yeah. Why? I just love the whole concept of it. You know, I just, um, I mean, I tend to believe in that things happen for a reason. There's like a bigger picture and I believe in destiny and fate. And so I just love that word. Do you think there was, there's a moment in your life or a few moments in your life where you were like recollecting the day and you said, this, this was coincidence. This was serendipity. Did it, do you think it's played a part in your life at oh, all? Oh, like definitely. Um, I mean, for yeah. sure, even just my, you know, my husband and I sort of getting together was was a destined thing, um, serendipitous. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very yeah. Cool. And and the movie, the rom com is so oh, yeah. I know. cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> what other profession? What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh man, I think I mean, geez, if I had talent, I'd love to be like a singer. <laughs> Yes, nice. We could start a band. Yeah, I love music. Always wanted to do that. And that would be like fun to be a performer and a singer. I think that would probably be it. I say we we try to do it in our 50s together. All right, I'm in. No one can, no one can get mad at us then. We'll be too old. No. It's fine. I'm in. Okay, and last question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, you did a good job helping others. That's what I want to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a solid answer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, Nizar, any other additions? I, I'm done with my questions. No, I think we I mean, we, I have a ton more, but it's been an hour and a half. And yeah. I think Tara no, needs no, to we, go. This has been a great talk. Um, good luck for future projects. I'd very much love to see anything more uh, of you on CBS. Obviously, I'm, we're, gonna, we're telling people to also follow you on Instagram to get uh, heads up on stories. You've also, I mean, just reading some of the comments that people leave you, they they, they really like you. <laughs> and that's kind of half the battle is getting people to like you to then also take you seriously because it's it's very, very seldom is it the other way around where they don't like you and still take you seriously. So you're able to connect with people in a way uh, that they aren't able to with other people, maybe even people that know, physicians that they know personally in their own life. And that's that's hard. So congrats. Aww, thank you. This is why she's going to have her own show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can see it. She comes from uh, cool parents, and I guess her brother is cool too. Yeah, I love you, Car. A little bit cool. (laughs) Yeah, you better listen to this episode, Car. Seriously. (laughs) All right, thank you so much to Dr. Tara Narula Congello. If you want, find her on Instagram. She's always posting things from her CBS feeds or just things going on in her life. That's at Dr. Tara. T-A-R-A, Narula, N-A-R-U-L-A. Uh, definitely, what did you think of the uh, Yeah, talk? it was so exciting to talk to her again. You yeah. know, I've known her for a while um, and not surprised to see her career blow up. Just skyrocketing. Yeah, I mean, she's a genius and yeah. just everything. So um, 
I feel pretty awesome that I have these kind of friends. I'm, I'm glad you do too. Oh, yeah, I feel pretty good. So. Um, but yeah, definitely, guys. She's she's on CBS Morning News, CBS Evening News. Mm-hmm. She has lots of good tips. So definitely follow her. Yeah. And um, we are going to be back. We won't leave you guys again for a month. No. Right? No. Second honeymoon won't be for a while. Yeah. yeah. And me neither. Trust me. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, from now till I move to Arkansas, mm-hmm. we have tons of interviews and round table brown talks table planned. Brown table talks. Yeah. yeah. And quite revealing uh, brown table talks planned. Next week. As far as uh, yes. personal life. So yeah. that's uh, that'll be fun. We always like doing those. Yeah. We haven't had one with wine in a while. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should do that next week. It'll we help mo- us laugh We might ourselves. need it. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So... We will uh, keep posting on our Instagram feed, which you guys know. Of course, at AmiTuckeredOut, A-M-I-T-U-C-K-E-R-E-D. Or email us, uh, AmiTuckeredOut at gmail.com. You know, all of our other handles. Follow me personally at Nizarbabul, N-I-Z-A-R-B-A-B-U-L. And we will be talking to you guys next week. This is Ami Tuckered Out. Bye.